Extend a, a warm welcome to you all on behalf of Ray's family and uh, to uh, Jill and Paul as we come together to celebrate and give thanks for his life. And although this is a time when we grieve his loss to us, it's also a time when we can rejoice knowing that he's gone to be with his Lord. Scripture reminds us that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And Ray is now with him whom he lived for during his time among us. We're going to stand and sing our first hymn, which is before the throne of God above. There the uh, words are uh, in the orders of service. I don't know if they're going to repeat it or not. Yes, they are. Okay. Let's stand.
Let's uh, pray and give thanks together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our dear friend and brother, Ray. We thank you for the privilege of knowing him, whether as a relative or a friend. We thank you for his life and for all that he was and all that he accomplished. We thank you that now he is at home in your presence. And though we grieve his passing from us, you, Lord, are our comfort in our loss. We thank you, Lord. Please be seated. It's my pleasure to invite Ray son Paul to share some memories of Dad. Paul. Good morning. Um, sorry this is a bit long, but there's a lot to feed. Once again, I'd like to welcome you on behalf of all of our family and thank you all for coming this morning when we can celebrate the life of my father, a true gentleman who touched all of our lives in many different ways. Sorry. Lionel Raymond Frank Thompson, or Ray as he came to be more usually known, was born on the 29th of October 1928 in Tottenham, where he grew up with his father Frank, his mother Edith, and his younger sister Margaret, who we unfortunately lost back in 2006. As he grew up and went to school at Tottenham Grammar School, he developed what became a lifelong passion for mathematics and science. This manifested itself in various ways. One of the more notable occasions was when his mother came home one day to find him and his best friend Edwin leaning out of his bedroom window, surrounded by billowing clouds of smoke. It turned out that one of his many experiments had gone somewhat awry and had exploded. Many years later, when me and Jill used to stay at the house with Nan and Auntie Margaret, we had the splatter marks, which still remained on the ceiling, pointed out to us. After finishing his A-levels, he sat the entrance exam for Cambridge University. Part of the exam was a practical experiment. Unfortunately, that didn't go quite according to plan, and, yet again, he managed to cause another explosion and failed the exam. Despite his apparently recurring problem with unexpectedly blowing things up, he persevered with his studies and graduated from a different college with a degree in physics from London University. His love of maths and science showed itself in many different ways, whether it be explaining to a somewhat disinterested Jill how the different angles of the lights and the ceiling at her house allowed for efficient lighting of the room, or later, when he'd become less physically able, insisting on informing Jill exactly how many calories it had taken to heat the water while she was busily trying to shower him. His passion for maths, however, did rub off on me. I remember being both fascinated and very impressed when during dinner at a restaurant in Hatfield, he got a pen and a napkin, and using a combination of geometry and algebra, he proved Pythagoras' theorem to me. I thought that it was brilliant, but I don't think the mum and Jill could have been less impressed if they'd tried. <laughs> His first job was working for the UK Atomic Energy Authority, where he worked on many projects, including two years at the Windscale Nuclear Power Plant. Many years later, Jill's next-door neighbours, John and Janet, took him and Jill for a day out to Dungeness Nuclear Power Station, a trip that John was telling me and Jackie about only a couple of weeks ago. It was very disappointing that due to his wheelchair, he was unable to do the actual tour. He did, however, spend quite a while chatting to the staff, showing his knowledge of nuclear power and sharing a lot of his experiences from working at Windscale. They were so impressed that at the end of his visit, 
they gave him some special souvenirs that weren't usually available to the general public. After working for UK AEA, he then went to work for the de Havilland Aircraft Company, later to become Hawker Siddeley in Hatfield, where he started to work with electronics, which was to become the main part of his working life. Through his work there, he got to travel all over the world and had many adventures, including herding kangaroos in a helicopter in Australia, visiting Japan, and being suspected of being a train hijacker in Yorkshire not long after the great train robbery. <laughs> On April the 5th, 1958, he married my mother Ruth and they moved to Hatfield. The highlight of his career was when he was asked to be the chairman for Euromicro 1980 in London, an international conference about the development of electronics and microprocessors. It was whilst he was in Denmark doing some organising for this conference that he was suddenly disturbed by police hammering on his hotel bedroom door, having mistaken him for a drug baron who was also called Thompson. <laughs> he also bucked the trend with this conference where, rather than employing a professional admin team, which was the usual policy, he employed his sister Margaret as the accountant and me, Jill and Mum as his admin team, which involved preparing and distributing the welcome and information packs to all the delegates at the conference. In the 1960s, he helped fund, build and run a new church, South Hatfield Evangelical Church. He designed and installed all the electrics and remained involved in the running of the church until after he had retired and when him and mum moved to Halsham. His busy and hectic life did take its toll on his health at times. In the 1970s, he had a major heart attack and in the late 90s, he suffered his first stroke. It was while he was in hospital undergoing rehab from that stroke that he was allowed out for a car ride with Mum and Jill. Now Dad always loved his food, and the meals at the hospital weren't up to what he considered a satisfactory standard, so he insisted that they took him to the chip shop for fish and chips. But they were sworn to secrecy, under no circumstances were they to let the nurses know where they'd been. It was 2002 when Mum and Dad finally left Hatfield and moved to Halsham to be closer to Jill and Auntie Margaret, who had already moved to the area. After his stroke, Dad was unable to move around or walk easily, so Mum looked after him. However, about ten years ago, after an unfortunate accident in the snow whilst putting the bin out, Mum had to go to hospital with a broken hip. So Dad went to stay with Jill here in Hurstmansoo. When Mum came out of hospital, she also moved in with Jill. And, with a lot of help from Lewis, Jill looked after both of them until we sadly lost Mum in 2014. Jill then continued to look after Dad for the rest of his life. Now, Jill and I have an enormous amount of fond and happy memories of Dad, far too many to recount here, so we decided to settle on one each. One of my proudest moments was when, while I was working on a Pink Floyd concert at Earl's Court, I was allowed to bring Mum and Dad in during the afternoon before one of the shows and show them around, including taking them up onto the stage and explaining how I, along with a lot of other crew members, had built the stage and hung all the lights and effects on the roof. I felt that it was the first time that they realised that what I did was, in fact, a proper job and real work. <laughs> Jill's chosen memory is what she considers one of her happiest from our childhood. We were lucky enough to have lots of great family holidays, Hopeman in Scotland, Southold in Suffolk and many others. Jill remembers that while on holiday in Gowan Haven in Cornwall, that Dad, her and me went swimming in the sea. Dad was always a strong swimmer, and Jill tells how he swam around while me and Jill held onto his shoulders, being, getting pulled through the water. It was great fun, and Jill describes him as moving through the water like a great big fish, and the memory still brings a smile to her face to this day. We also wanted to try to come up with the words that we felt best described him. Once again, it was a long list, 
but we narrowed it down to genuine, caring, not just for us, he also qualified as a counsellor so that he could better help other people. Solid, honest, dependable, <laughs> dependable, straightforward, honourable, admirable, admirable and humble. He was also one of the wisest people that either of us have ever met. He was always optimistic. Even after his first stroke, he said that life was full of lots of ups and downs, but that God always made it right for him. He said that even when he hit the real lows, he knew that things would work out right, and they always did, a philosophy that all of us could learn from. In closing, I'd like to say how grateful me and Jill are to have had such an incredible father, and what a wonderful granddad he always was for Lewis and Charlotte. We're all so sad to say goodbye to him, and we'll miss him, but all of us consider ourselves so lucky to have known him, loved him, been loved by him, and to have shared so much of our lives and experiences with him. Now, there's one final part that I felt I needed to say. Um, when I wrote this, I sent it to Jill to make sure that she was happy with it. But I didn't send her this bit, as I knew she'd say to leave it out. When Mum and Dad were no longer able to look after themselves properly, they moved in with Jill. She gave up her career and a lot of other, a lot of other things and devoted the next 10 years of her life to making their last years as comfortable, as pleasant and as enjoyable as was possible. As my father's health deteriorated, this became harder, both physically, as he wasn't a small man, and mentally. This was especially hard this last year as she was suffering with her own health issues. She did an incredible job. I don't think I'd have been able to do it. She has been truly wonderful and a fantastic daughter, carer and friend to both mum and dad. For all of this, she has my undying admiration and my eternal gratitude. Thank you. Thank you, Paul and Jill, for sharing your memories of Dad. We're going to um, uh, sing a second hymn now, which is Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. I don't know how well you know that. I don't know it very well. It's not one that I normally uh, have sung, so I'm expecting perhaps a bit of a lead from over here. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, let's stand together and sing it. It's a lovely, uh, lovely hymn.
this Bible passage was chosen by Ray. This is what he wanted you to hear today. Beloved brothers and sisters, we want you to be quite certain about the truth concerning those who have passed away so that you won't be overwhelmed with grief like many others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who died while believing in him. This is the word of the Lord. We who are alive in him and remain on earth when the Lord appears will by no means have an advantage over those who have already died, for both will rise together. For the Lord himself will appear with the declaration of victory, the shout of an archangel, and the trumpet blast of God. He will descend from the heavenly realm and command those who are dead in Christ to rise first. Then we who are alive will join them, transported together in clouds to have an encounter with the Lord in the air and we will be forever joined with the Lord. So encourage one another with these truths. Thank you, Sylvia. We're going to stand uh, and sing again. It's our final hymn, actually. It's... uh, In Christ alone, we stand.
Please be seated. I was uh, honoured uh, to be asked to um, take this funeral today for Ray. Um, I knew Ray from when he first came to Hausham along with Ruth. I also met Jill and, uh, as well and um, spent um, much time with them uh, through those years that they were with us before uh, they eventually moved to Hurstmanshoe <coughs> and joined the church here. And uh, so it's a great honour and privilege to be here and, uh, and to share this uh, occasion with you as we celebrate and give thanks for Ray, for his life and uh, for the man that he was. It's not unusual these days for a person approaching death to choose um, the songs that they would like sung at their funeral, but it's quite unusual to have a, a reading chosen from you, and from that I take it that he'd like me to speak about what he, uh, the reading that he chose, which I'm going to do. And uh, so I want to honour that choice and uh, say some words about the passage that Sylvia read to us from Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. And uh, I want to draw our attention, first of all, to the way that Paul describes death. Now, death is a great taboo subject. Uh, we don't like death, we don't like to talk about it, and even when we're getting close to death, we don't like to uh, think about death and uh, consider um, the process of death itself, but also what there might or might not be afterwards. And, of course... For many, they believe that it's just the end. But when Paul describes the death of a believer, uh, he doesn't describe it as dying. The original, uh, the Greek in which the uh, New Testament was written, uses a word which means fallen asleep. So if I were to just read to you... Um, in fact, it says it three times, but just I'll, I'll read those first um, three verses. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do, have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him with, uh, bring him, uh, sorry, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. As if he had to repeat this phrase three times just to get the point over that actually death is not the end and all that's happened is that these believers that have died have literally fallen asleep. Now of course he wasn't saying they hadn't died, but he was commenting and reflecting on what it means for a believer to die, to pass from this life, to pass away. And he describes it in terms of having fallen asleep. Now some, some translations don't like this um, for the reason that it gives the impression that perhaps when we die, we literally, our souls fall asleep. And of course that's an unbiblical idea 
Um, the idea, of course, that we find in Scripture, the truth we find in Scripture, is that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. We're present with the Lord. He's with us, us with him. We're in his presence. And so it's not a soul sleep, as some would, uh, would interpret it. But nonetheless, this is not what Paul means anyway. He means simply that death has lost its sting for the believer. It's just like passing through from one place into another. It's like just falling asleep and waking in the presence of God. What a beautiful phrase that is, isn't it? What a beautiful idea. What a beautiful concept. Death is not the end. And Paul is uh, wanting them not to be uninformed about this so that they might not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, of course, it's not wrong. he's not saying here that we don't grieve or that we shouldn't grieve. In fact, it's good that we do grieve. But it's the nature of grief. And, of course, there are many others who, when their loved ones pass from them, know deep, deep grief. Sometimes, um, with, for, for some, that grief lasts many, many, many years, sometimes to the rest of their lives. Deep grief. A grief which uh, is unresolved, if you like. But here he says that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We have a hope. There is a, there is a hope. We call it the Christian hope. But it's actually a hope which is a, a biblical hope. It's a hope which is founded on things that happened back then, 2,000 years ago. What is the basis of this hope that we have? Well, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus. <coughs> Jesus died, but he rose again from death. We've just sung about it. He rose up, and he came back out of death. It wasn't just that he resuscitated. Somebody didn't give him CPR. He actually came out of the tomb after three days. The stone was rolled back by the angels, and he came out. He defeated death. He wasn't coming back to the same sort of life. He was entering into a totally new phase of existence. A place where there was no, was no death and is no death. And that's the basis upon which we have a hope. And so this hope isn't just a wish. It isn't some sort of, oh well, you know, maybe, maybe there's this, maybe there's that. No, this is, a, this is an absolute, this is an assured hope, an expectation. And so we find here that Jesus dying and rising again means that we also who have believed in him will follow him. God will bring with him, it says, those who have fallen asleep. That's amazing, isn't it? That's wonderful. That's wonderful news. That's what the good news, the gospel as we call it, it's an old, that's an old Anglo-Saxon word, it means good news. That's the good news. That's the good news that I, I dare to say it that Ray wanted me to speak to you about today because that is really what he believed and knew in his own heart and he's got the, not he had the assurance of it, he's now got the reality of it. That's wonderful, isn't it? He's with the Lord. And, and so we find this, this certainty of the Christian hope, this connection somehow between Christ's death and resurrection and ours that we enter into that we live in this in-between time, in a world which is full of death. Graveyards, I think, is 
famous preacher once said, the world is full of graveyards. Well, it is. But for the believer, that's not where they live. They live in the presence of God. They are with the Lord in which they have believed and have known. It goes on to, uh, in, in verses 15 through 17, it says, This we declare to you by the word of the Lord. This is not just some uh, idea of Paul's um, that he was suggesting perhaps to these uh, believers at Thessalonica. It was the truth of God. It was the truth of God. It was a divine declaration. We declare to you by the, world, uh, by the word of the Lord. You know, there's a lot of, you're probably aware of it as much as I am, that there is a huge amount of fear in the world. Global warming. The world is coming to an end. That's basically the implication of it. And we see the, uh, the results of that global warming taking place on the planet. And people are fearful. And people are doing all sorts of things to try and stop it, as if they could, ultimately. But actually, that's not what Paul says here. Paul doesn't say, oh, this is how the world's going to end. It's going to end, it says, when Jesus comes back. It's the coming of the Lord, which is the end of the world, not global warming or wars or anything else. It's the Lord coming back that brings the world to an end. And it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with, with those uh, who have died with Christ to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will be ever with him. Now that doesn't tell the whole story. There's a new heaven and a new earth. We won't even touch on that today. But that's going to happen. For we were, we were made to live bodily. Ray's going to get a new body. We're going to get new bodies. But here, he's talking about what will happen at the end of the world. Well, the end of the world, as far as God is concerned, is when he brings it to an end. And when he sends his son back to come a second time to receive those who have believed in him. These are the words that we are to encourage one another with. That's where it ends. It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words with these truths. Let them fill your heart. Share them with one another. Share them with one another in these times when uh, those uh, uh, loved ones have passed from this life into the next. Share those words. For these are the truths which are the foundation of our hope and expectation for the future and for all that is to come. I hope Ray is listening. <laughs> and because I know that he would want uh, you to hear those words just as much as he chose that reading today. And um, just want to uh, uh, bring that to an end. We're go what we're going to do now is we're going to commit um, Ray to the ground. Uh, he's going to be taken to the crematorium at Wilden and um, I'd like us to stand together to do that. As we uh, commit Ray's body to the earth, 
we do so in the light of God's promise that this is not the end. The Bible passage that I've just reflected on reminds us of the temporary nature of our present existence in the body. Ray is no longer with us. He is away from the body and at home with the Lord. So as we commit his body to the ground, we can confidently say that he is with Christ, which in the words of the Apostle is far better. And for as much as it has pleased Almighty God in his great mercy to receive to himself the soul of Ray here departed, we commit his body to be consumed, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, grant that we may seek the things that lie beyond our vision. May the Holy Spirit give us faith, hope and love and lead us into true holiness of life. Enable us to do your will. Bring us to at last into your glorious presence. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 Do what long men now talk about. Take those pictures down, shake it out. Truth or consequence, say it aloud. Use that evidence, race it around. There goes my hero, watch him as he goes. Because <laughs>